Well, this morning, I just want to say a brief word of introduction uh, for our preacher. Um, Most of you, by this point, have met Michael Schiller, who's one of our pastoral interns. Uh, He started during his senior year at FSU, and now he's working on InterVarsity staff. We're excited to hear from him this morning. Uh, He's preached a couple of times, and Pastor John has he and uh, Jeremiah Simpson in his preaching cohort, and has been taking these guys under his wings. And I'd love to say a lot of uh, more positive things about Michael, but I know that he would rather us turn our our hearts and minds to the Lord and to his word this morning. So I'm going to let him open us in prayer. Lord, we thank you so much uh, for the chance to be communed together with believers. Um, Lord, would this time be one where the meditations of our heart um, and the thoughts that run through our head, may they be pleasing in your sight. Uh, May we see you as our rock and refuge and actually turn to you, knowing that you will keep us safe and you will provide and care for us as you always will, because you are faithful. Lord, we lift up your name and may this time be glorifying to you. Amen. I'm a big fan of the Disney Renaissance movie era. And this is the time where Disney produced some of their classic films, Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, the best one, and Aladdin, just to name a few. And my favorite part about these Renaissance films is the music. And the musical genius behind it all is a man named Alan Mankin. Now, Mankin, along with Howard Ashman and Tim Rice, wrote most of the Disney songs we all know and love. Beauty and the Beast, A Whole New World, Zero to Hero, all the music from Tangled, Hunchback of Notre Dame, and so much more. Now, Mankin is extremely talented in two specific areas. One are powerful I want songs in which the protagonist sings about their dreams. And the second thing that he's really good at are bombastic group numbers. And the one that I want to focus on today is Prince Ali from Aladdin. Now, I hate to spoil the movie if you haven't seen it. Um, But during this musical number, the genie makes Aladdin into a prince so that he can impress Princess Jasmine. Now, this song describes the procession of a soon-to-be king who enters the city of Agrabah, and the lyrics are about how wealthy and how famous and how strong this Prince Ali figure is. But at the end of the day, it's just Aladdin in a costume, and this big old procession doesn't impress Jasmine. In our passage today, we see the procession of a soon-to-be king into the city of Jerusalem, which ordinarily would have been cause for great celebration. But as you may have already noticed from our reading, this procession isn't very flashy nor does it come with hundreds of dancers and animals or Robin Williams singing Jesus along. Now, what this procession lacks in pomp, it makes up for in purpose. This royal parade gives us a clear view of who Jesus is and what he came to do. And finally, Jesus' hour is here. Jesus has had several times that his hour had not yet come, but now it's the hour. So here we have it, a kingly procession And the hour is here. But why is the hour here? And what does that mean? As a quick side note, know that the hour and Jesus' death are used synonymously in this sermon. Now, there are three questions that are going to serve as our roadmap for today. First, what do we learn about this king from the procession? Second, why is the hour right now? And third, what is the purpose of the hour? Let's look at the passage and open our pew Bibles. I did not catch the page, and so if somebody finds it, can you call it out for me? Thank you. Page 898. Um, Yeah, let's open our our Bibles to 898 and see what the triumphal entry teaches us about this king. 
Now, something that jumps off the page immediately is the people are so excited to see Jesus. But why? Because they were waiting for the prophecies about the Messiah to be fulfilled. They were waiting for their true king to save them. The Jewish people were also starting to connect the dots that Jesus actually was the Messiah, this figure in the Old Testament whose coming meant that Israel would be saved and Israel would be restored. And the Jewish folks had been desperately waiting for the Messiah to stomp out the Roman Empire, who had been ruling over the land for a few hundred years and would go on to rule for a few hundred more. Rome was pretty oppressive to the Jewish people. They exploited them in the legal system and social systems. They viewed the Jews suspiciously, um, and they were persecuted consistently because of their faith. Now, when you read the prophecies of the Messiah from the Old Testament, you can easily understand why the Jewish crowd was so excited for his arrival. The Messiah's cool, right? (laughs) He was prophesied to take down the enemies of God's people, to save the children of God, and to rule the nations. And it makes so much sense why palm fronds were brought out too, because they were symbolic of victory. In this case, the victory the Messiah was destined to obtain. Even in the prophecy quoted in the passage in Zechariah 9.9, which we see in verse 15, it tells of the king's splendor. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And Zechariah 9.10 continues with, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now tell me that doesn't amp you up, right? And if that didn't do it for you, remember the Jewish crowd had just seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. And even if you weren't familiar with the prophecies, I'm pretty sure that seeing some dude come back from the dead would catch your attention. We see in the Gospels that Jesus had crowds in thousands flocking him from all over Judea and Galilee. And this passage gives us reason to believe there was a massive uptick in Jews seeking after Jesus. So it makes so much sense why the Jews are crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Because Hosanna literally translates to save now. And if you saw this dude raise somebody from the dead, you might actually start to believe he could overthrow Rome, who the Jews considered to be their greatest oppressor. I can can imagine Jesus was hearing these cries of Hosanna, save now, and thinking to himself, I will. You have no idea yet, but I will save you. So the first attribute of this king is that he is a prophesied ruler who is coming to save the people. And, ooh, this really, really angered the Pharisees. We we see in verse 19 that they were watching from a distance and bitterly muttering, look, the world has gone after him. Such a revealing statement about where the Pharisees' priorities were at, right? They longed for control over the people. And so when Jesus came in and sought to tear down the broken system that these Pharisees ruled over, they could only think of one way to get control back. They got to kill Jesus. They even wanted to kill Lazarus, but he wasn't the Messiah. And yet in this passage, the people are giving glory to Jesus. And take notice that Jesus during this procession doesn't say a single word until verse 23. Not one. A second attribute of this king is he doesn't need to proclaim his own glory. And this is consistent with Jesus' character all throughout the Gospels, where constantly he asserts the futility of declaring his own glory. 
Jesus, in this passage and in other Gospels, talks about how God the Father glorifies him. And consistently, people didn't always believe this. Now, another aspect of this king is that the procession, while emotionally charged with cries of Hosanna, is peaceful. Now, typically, if a king rode into your city on a horse, that was bad news. It meant he was coming to wage war. But if he rode in on a donkey, it displayed he intended peace. Now, wait a minute. There's a bit of a disconnect here. The Jews expected him to come in, go to war, and conquer. And yet Jesus is coming in and communicating the opposite of that. Now, we'll come back to why this matters soon, but there's one more important quality of this king we need to talk about, which is sort of the elephant in the room. Remember how Jesus is silent throughout the whole procession? His silence is broken when he says in verse 23, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it, but unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The king's first proclamation in this royal procession is that he's going to die. What on earth is happening? This procession is supposed to be victorious. The king has finally come. The Messiah is here, and he's supposed to save the people from their worst enemy. But he just said that he's going to die, and that his death is going to bear fruit. You can imagine the faces of the Jewish crowd turning from sheer excitement to confusion. And imagine in less than a week later how demoralizing it may have felt watching Jesus hang on the cross. However, Jesus knew something that the Jewish crowds did not. He was coming to conquer, as he was prophesied to do. But he wasn't coming for the Roman Empire, nor was he just coming on Israel's behalf. And so what kind of king is this? He was a prophesied one who was humble and peaceful and was going to die for a far greater purpose, which is to save the whole world. And now, as we see in verse 23, the hour has come. But on to our second question, why? Why has the hour come and why right now? And Jesus saying the hour has come is something that might go under the radar if you read this passage in isolation. But all throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus repeats, my hour has not yet come. Now, two notable examples of this are in John chapter 2 and in John chapter 7. Now, in John 2, Jesus is at the wedding in Cana. He turns water into wine. And Mary approaches him to let him know that the wine has run out, to which Jesus replies, my hour has not yet come. In John chapter 7, Jesus' brothers are prompting him to go to Jerusalem and display his miraculous works at the Feast of Booths, but Jesus tells them as well, my hour has not yet come. So what distinguishes this situation from the others? The answer is simply that Greeks want to see Jesus. And this is so peculiar, too, in part because the two other events Jesus mentioned when it was not his hour are events that likely would have been 100% Jewish. Per Jewish custom of the day, Jews could not eat with Gentiles, nor even enter their house. So it was super unlikely that any Gentiles were at the wedding in John 2. And in John 7, the Feast of Booths is meant to celebrate God's provision for Israel. So it doesn't really make sense for any pagan Greeks to be there. And so finally, after all this time, there are Gentiles seeking after Jesus. This is a huge deal. So why does... Why do Greeks seeking Jesus matter? It's because now Gentiles and Jews are seeking after him. And in our modern context, this is a 
pretty normal thing. But understand that something like this happening was jarring and actually abnormal. This is a time in history where groups were supremely homogenous and outsiders were viewed as barbaric. How different from today, right? Unless we understand how divided the Jews and Gentiles actually were, we could miss how important this was. At the same time the Jews recognized the Messiah was going to be a light for the Gentiles, they lived in this tension where they despised them. Yet they knew he must be a light to them. So it's a bit paradoxical. And it must have taken a lot of courage for the Greeks to even seek after Jesus. And yet they pushed through potential rejection and scorn just to see this man. Therefore, there had never been a more opportune moment for the hour or Jesus' death to come. The proper audience had finally fallen into place. So now that everybody's here, what's the purpose of the hour? What's the purpose of Jesus' death from this passage? Now, there are three answers that Jesus himself gives us about the purpose of his death today. One, the hour, his death, is meant for glory. Two, it's meant for victory. And three, it's meant for unity. We see in this passage that the hour, Jesus' death, is meant for glory. The very first thing Jesus says in this passage is that the time has come for him to be glorified on the cross. And how mystifying that his glory would be displayed through public and barbaric execution. As Sarah pointed out, he knew full well what he was about to experience. He was going to experience betrayal, abandonment by his friends, torture, injustice, suffocation, mockery, rejection, and death, and only really a matter of hours. And he knew full well that the very people worshiping him right now would be the ones shouting, crucify him, in only a few days. And yet, face to face, with death and horror, he turns his eyes toward heaven and recognizes in the end of verse 27 that the cross is not only his purpose here on earth, but it is meant to glorify God the Father. And he calls out to the Father once again and asks, Father, glorify your name. And then in a miracle from heaven, a voice booms down and says, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. I imagine it was so comforting to Jesus that the one thing he wanted to do on earth, God did for him. Throughout the Bible, you find that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit exist in a rhythm where they all receive glory, but always seek to glorify each member of the Trinity. And the cross is no different, and we see this dynamic played out with the Father and the Son in this passage. The Son is glorified because he's exalted by the Father to carry out this holy and sacrificial purpose. And the Father is glorified because he carries out perfect justice by defeating sin on the cross, pouring out his wrath, and there's death in the resurrection, but also offering redemption and showing his love to all who would follow. So very clearly, we see that the hour is meant for glory. Secondly, Jesus knows the cross will bring victory against sin and death. Following the voice from heaven, Jesus says in verse 30, The voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of the world. Now the ruler of the world will be cast out. And Jesus was, here, was talking about the devil right here, the source of all evil in the world, and the one whom Jesus calls earlier in John the prince of the earth. And the devil's two biggest tools on earth are sin and death. 
sin being this polluting presence that drags people into eternal death and suffering. But by Jesus bearing all the sins of the world, paying for these sins in his death, and resurrecting from the dead, he completely and utterly devastates the devil's bread and butter. All of a sudden, all people now have access to eternal life and eternal forgiveness of their sins. Yes, the devil is still present and attempting to drag everybody down that he can, but we need to know that the cross was the kickoff to Jesus' victory campaign. And since 33 AD, Jesus has been marching step by step, destroying Satan's strongholds, redeeming our brokenness, and offering us new life. Jesus landed this knockout blow on Satan and said, I'll be back to do it again. And the best part about this victory is it's available to all people so long as they believe. And the fi- that's the final purpose of the cross we'll talk about. The cross is meant to show the glory and the victory to all people. And that's why Jesus says in verse 32, uh, this is why the Greeks seeking Jesus matters so much. The proper audience has fallen into place, which is the fulfillment of the prophecy as Jesus was prophesied to be a light to the nations. And something we need to understand, y'all, is that God's plan has always been for all people to believe in him and know him intimately. We see from Jesus in this passage that the cross would bridge all people to God. Furthermore, we know that the cross was successful in this goal because we see the fruits of it in our world today. Even more relevant is that in Acts chapter 2, the very first act of the Holy Spirit is giving the apostles the gift of tongues so they can communicate the glory and the victory of the gospel that all people may believe. Even the Great Commission ensures the fulfillment of this goal, as Jesus called his followers throughout history to go to the ends of the earth and share the good news. So we have seen that the cross, the purpose of this hour, is meant to glorify God, to bring victory over sin and death, and meant to unify all people under Christ. So to recap, what does this procession teach us about this king? He was prophesied, humble, peaceful, and was going to die. Why has the hour come now? The hour has come now because both Jews and Gentiles are seeking after Jesus. And what is the purpose of the hour? It's Jesus' death is meant to glorify God, to bring victory over sin and death, and is meant to unify all people under Christ. And so where are we in this story? We are in the procession right behind Jesus. We are following him as his servants. Now, to those who would serve, Jesus says, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, my servant will be also. If anyone serves, the Father will honor him. We have to hate our lives. But what does that mean? It's a similar idea to when Jesus says in Luke 14, 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. As the Enduring Word commentary notes, this does not mean that we go around harboring resentment towards our families, resentment towards our wives and children, uh, and slandering them in front of others. But instead, 
we must put Jesus as such a priority in our own lives. It means that we have him so prioritized that in comparison, our devotion to everything else looks like hatred. Basically, nothing in this world compares to God. There's nothing. And following Jesus day to day is a constant reminder that nothing else ever will compare to God for all eternity. Jesus uses the metaphor of a wheat seed dying to describe himself. And for all plants, the seed must die so that the fruit can grow. What seeds in your life have to die in order to follow Jesus? While we may not face physical death for our faith like the early church fathers, we still have opportunities to put things to death in our lives so that they can bear fruit. We may sacrifice and offer up finances, offer up our homes so people may stay with us, offer up our schedules, our own desires. But remember, it's all in service of our king who offered himself so that we may live. And not only has Jesus promised us life as fruit for following him, but we get to live lives stocked full of peace like you've never known. Joy that is so overwhelming you can hardly speak. And God's goodness so bountifully, you won't even know how to respond other than by praising him from the deepest parts of your soul. Deciding to follow Jesus and putting these seeds to death is the best decision you can ever make. For anyone who can testify to this reality, let me hear an amen. Resounding. Yes, it's worth it, y'all. It's worth it. We can't even fully comprehend how worth following Jesus is. Jesus became a servant and was glorified. When we serve Jesus, he promises us the Father will honor us too. When we forsake what the world has to offer and become servants of Christ, we find everlasting life and glory and unity with Christ.